Well, it is really good to be here this morning with you up here. Um, uh, as uh, John mentioned, I'm a partner here at Summit Waterford, uh, specifically this like this service, 11 o'clock. Um, so yeah, what's up? How's it going? Um, so I'm, I'm just I'm glad to be here. It's fun to, to be here and to share uh, from God's word with you this morning. As John also mentioned, um, uh, my family, Betsy, myself, Arjun, the little brown kid you see running around. Like we're, we're, all, we're all excited to be a part of this family. Um, I also, we serve with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We're a national campus ministry that helps students and faculty um, find the intersection between their uh, studies and their work and their life in the university world um, and their faith in Jesus. And I help uh, these students um, set up Christian movements on college campuses in the area where they can be encouraged in their faith, where they can study God's word, and where they can reach out to other people in that really strategic um, realm with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's really cool, like our campus in particular, Summit Church here at Waterford, we sort of sit like at the crosshairs between all these universities, like UCF is right down the road, Valencia, the East Campus is right there, Full Sail's right over there. I don't know if I'm pointing in the right directions, but they're <laughs> somewhere around here. And we're just right by them. And um, uh, if you want to have a part to play, if you want to learn about what God's doing on these campuses, feel free to come up and talk to me afterwards or hear how you can be praying for what God is doing. And he is doing things on the college campus. It's really exciting. I'd love to share that with you. Um, or if you're a student and you're here, if you're uh, or you're planning to start college this August, um, please come talk to me. I'd love to connect you with uh, a group of Christians on your campus who could help encourage you in your walk with Jesus and um, help you along in that journey. Um, so as we, I'm, I'm excited to be in this, this uh, series that we've been in, the nine conversations. And as I thought about um, sort of the conversation we're going to look at this morning and just the series we've been in of conversations Jesus has with different people in the scriptures, it reminded me of this really um, uh, sort of a funny story that I heard a while back about a conversation between two people. It was between a, a Texas rancher and this Indian farmer. And the Texan turned to the Indian man and he said, um, Mr. Singh, how big is your farm back in India? And the Indian man looked out and he said, do you see that pole all the way over there? My farm is about as long that way as it is wide. And the Texan said, well, do you know how big my, my ranch is back in Texas? If you get in my car at about 9 a.m. in the morning and you begin driving and driving and driving, at about noon, you'll reach the end of my property line. And the Indian man quickly turned back to him and he said, I know exactly how you feel. I used to have a car just like that. Some of y'all are just getting, you're just like, what? <laughs> in our world of cross-cultural communication, sometimes things can get lost in translation. In the analogies that we use, in the metaphors that we use, in the sort of cultural context that we come, the way that we perceive, perceive the word, when we engage in cultural and cross-cultural communication, sometimes things can get lost. And I think in the same way, when we come to the scriptures, things we, we miss, especially when we look at conversations Jesus is having with people, we can miss what he's saying, what he means. We can miss the relevance it has to our life or the weight it has um, in which he's saying uh, if we don't come to it 
with humility, with a posture of openness, with patience. Just like in cross-cultural communication, you need patience to really understand what is the other person saying. You need humility that maybe I'm going to learn something in this conversation. You need openness to see something from a different point of view. And my invitation to each one of us in this room is that we would be open, that we'd have a posture of openness and humility as we come to this last conversation we're going to be looking at in this series. What does God want to say to me? And what relevance does it have to my life and to the world? Can we do that? Um, I, so I work with college students, and, and I'm one of those speakers that you need to like talk back to me so I know like you're still there. You know, So if, you don't have to say amen if that's too churchy for you. You can just be like, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I heard you. I, you, know, you can just nod your head or something like that. Um, so we're going to come to this passage. It's in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. If you have a Bible, turn to it, or it's on the back of your bulletin. And I really encourage you to have it out in front of you because I'm going to reference it quite a bit as we go through um, this time. So it's Luke chapter 7 starting in verse 36, and this is how it reads. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the, to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them do you think will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's three things that Jesus reverses in this passage. Three things that Jesus reverses in this passage. And with the time I have remaining, I want to show this to you. Starting with the first thing, Jesus reverses shame and honor. He reverses shame and honor. Let me set the scene for us. This uh, Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to his house for dinner, like a dinner party. And um, the Pharisees, if you aren't aware, were sort of the religious and cultural leaders of the Jewish people. They, were, um, they, they, they worked really hard to keep the laws of God, over 600 laws of God that were given to the Israel people. They worked really hard to keep those laws, and they were really honored and respected in the community. And so this, this Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to come to his house and have dinner with him. 
Then we meet the second character in the story, which is this woman who the text tells us is a sinful woman. What her sin is, it, it doesn't make clear, but it's public. Like everybody knows she's a sinful woman. And she shows up uninvited to this dinner party. And she sort of like bursts onto the scene with this really like emotional display, this raw display of emotion towards Jesus, right? She's, she's standing behind Jesus and she's crying and she's crying so much that she's saturating Jesus' feet. And that's not like quiet crying, right? That's like ugly crying. Like everybody hears you in that room. Like everybody knows something is up, right? She's crying. Then she lets out her hair and she's like using it like a towel. She's wiping the, uh, the, the tears off of Jesus' feet. Then she kisses them. Then she uh, opens up this extremely expensive alabaster jar perfume, extremely expensive perfume, and pours it on Jesus' feet. Now, if you were there, if I was there, you'd be like, this is awkward. <laughs> like, this is, this, is, this is embarrassing, right? If this was like social media, if you hashtag this, this would be like that awkward moment when... Like, uninvited guest, uninvited person shows up at your party and just loses it and makes a scene, right? Like it's, and, it, and in the context, in this culture, it's entirely inappropriate, right? Sinful woman comes to the house of the honored, respected Jewish, religious, righteous leader and begins kissing the feet of Jesus like the Pharisee's house should have just exploded in that moment for breaking social custom. It's embarrassing, entirely inappropriate, a little like sensual with her letting out her hair and kissing his feet. It's really odd. And Simon, he wastes no time sort of drawing his conclusions about what's happening here. Look at verse 39. He says, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon's assumption is if Jesus were a prophet, he should know that he should know without anyone telling him that this woman is a sinner. And in his mind, if he knew that she was a sinner, he would separate himself. He would despise this woman. He would not be allowing her to touch him. But isn't that ironic? Because Jesus does know. Like being God, he knows her sin better than anyone else in the room. He knows exactly what she has done down to the deepest recesses of her heart. He knows who she is. But instead of shaming her like Simon expects, he honors her. Instead of shaming her, he honors her. Look at verse 44. Jesus says this to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. She's kissed me. She's poured. You didn't give me any oil for my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. You did not, but she has. You did not, but she has. Repeated over and over and over again. Do You see what's happening here. Jesus is like, he, it's, he's like he's stepping in front of the judgmental mindset of Simon and defending this woman's honor. And at the very moment that her shame switches to honor, Simon's honor, he is dishonored in that place. Jesus rebukes him for, welcoming, for, for, for what has happened, rebukes him for his welcome and honors this woman for what she has done. And it's, it's funny, right? It's Simon who's invited Jesus to his house, but it's the woman who's actually welcomed him. 
It's Simon who's invited him, but the woman has welcomed him. And what was to, supposed to be to her shame is actually the thing that's to her honor. Listen very carefully. What is actually happening here is Jesus is showing us the paradox of what it means to welcome God into your life. He's showing us the paradox of what it means to know and even flourish in the Christian life. Um, a friend uh, a couple years ago uh, was telling me about how he met his wife that he's married to now. And he's, he's, uh, he's an Indian man. He's a part of a big Indian community. And, and in Indian families, usually, um, like, the parents and the family is usually really involved in the, like, process of two, like, young people getting together and eventually getting married, right? They're, they might introduce you or they might be, like, supportive and really involved in the process until you get married or it might be, like, an arranged marriage or something like that um, versus, like, you know, in more Western societies, it generally tends to be, like, two people meet and they date and they figure it out. Then they go and talk to their parents and, you know, then they get married. Um, but so everybody in his community is like telling my friend, like, uh, hey, have you noticed this girl? You should really go and, you know, I think you guys would make a great couple. Have you talked to her? Have you talked to her family? Da, da, da. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I've, I've seen her and I, I'm planning to talk to her. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But he was so nervous. He was so shy. So he didn't do it. And they kept repeatedly telling him. Eventually, this like elder uncle in the community calls him on the phone. And, um, you know, says to him, hey, have you, have you noticed this girl? Um, I think you guys would make a great couple. I think you should, you know, have you spoken to her? And he's like, yeah, uncle, you know, I've, I've, um, you know, I've noticed her. I've seen her, and I'm, I'm planning to, you know, I'm, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to talk to her. And um, then the uncle said, there's sort of like a pause in the phone call, and the uncle says, um, so do you want me to call her for you, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk to her, and then I'll call you back, and I'll tell you what she says? And my friend who's telling me this story, he's like, it was at that moment that I realized I had no game. <laughs> Those who flourish in the Christian life and welcome Jesus into their life are those who admit freely that they have no game at anything. That actually we are, we deserve to be shamed by God. Our life is full of shame and we come to God and we freely confess that those are the ones who get Jesus like this woman. If we're willing to admit that we have no game before this God, Jesus reverses shame and honor. And shame properly understood actually does that. It drives us to Jesus. It drives us to God. Myself included, there is not a person in this room who has not experienced and does not experience shame. It's one of the oldest human experiences, right? When the first man and woman sinned and, and broke God's command and didn't trust him, the first thing they felt was shame. And they ran and they hid and they tried to cover themselves up. And we see it today all around us. People trying really hard to cover up, to hide, to medicate, to ignore the shame that haunts us for crossing lines that we promised ourselves we would never cross. Forget God's standard. We all have some sort of moral standard for ourselves, and we all seem to cross that line. We said we would never do that, but we end up doing. And shame comes in and nags us and haunts us for the things that we've done or even maybe that have been done to us. And the woman in our story knew this feeling well. And it drove her to Jesus. That's the unique and beautiful message 
of this news that we call good. That we've all blown it in 101 ways and deserve actually to be shamed by God, but the reverse happens. That God honors us by making us his children, amen? He honors us by making us his children. The reverse happens. That is the beautiful message of the gospel. He stands up for us. Just like Jesus stands up for this woman and defends our honor, there's a million ways all of us have a self-critic inside of us or voices outside of us or even the enemy who comes and accuses us. You've done this, you've done that. How dare you think you're anything? And we try hard to sort of do things to make up for the problems or the, the mistakes that we made, the mistakes that we made. But it's Jesus's defense that we need. We need him to step up and honor us and make us his children. Jesus reverses shame and honor. And the funny thing is, and our story is a great example of it, those who actually get shamed by God, those who miss God, are those who attempt, like Simon, to think, I've got it all together. I'm righteous enough. Or look at that person. Look what they've done. Or I can't believe that person would show up here. Or I can't believe that person would, would take steps towards God. I can't believe what that person has done. Those are the people that miss Jesus in their pursuit. Here's, you still with me? You still with me? Here's the powerful relevance of this idea to the world. As we've been going along in these uh, conversation series, every, um, every week, the person who spoke has actually um, showed us this. They've highlighted this. When Jesus had conversations with people in the scriptures, something he constantly did is that um, he interacted with dehumanized people, people who had some way been dehumanized, they, they, and meaning um, their value, their dignity, the inherent value and dignity that God has given them for being made in his image, um, they've been deprived of that some way by the culture. Maybe they're demon-possessed, maybe they're disabled, maybe they're sick, maybe they're a different ethnicity, maybe they're a sinner, maybe they're like this woman, maybe they're a tax collector, whatever it is, then they've been dehumanized. And Jesus always humanized those who were dehumanized by the culture. Let me say that again. Jesus always humanized those who have been dehumanized by the culture. Now, if we see what Jesus is doing here, if we see that the idea of the gospel is that we all deserve to be shamed by God, but instead he honors us. We all deserve the opposite, but God makes us his children. If we like solar panels, like received the rays of God's grace, of continually pressed that truth into our lives, what would that mean for our interactions with the world? What would that mean for our interactions, our views of those who are dehumanized in the culture? It would be no longer when we, uh, when we think of the poor, when we see the poor, it's like they need to fix their circumstances. They need to get out of the hole that they're in. Instead of continuing to dehumanize them, we would humanize them. There's a way that we would show mercy. Instead of accepting the narrative that is the dehumanizing narrative of the way that the culture is talking about uh, immigrants who are trying to come into this country, instead of dehumanizing them, because of the grace that we've received, we would show compassion and love and pray with compassion and love and grace for those who have been, who are being dehumanized. And maybe the only point 
from this sermon that you need to walk out of is this. That we, you, me, we need to repent of ways that we dehumanize people in our own hearts, in our, in our quiet voices, in the ways we talk to ourselves, in the ways that we act. And we need to humanize people the way Jesus does, the way he shows compassion and grace and love towards people. We can celebrate with those 25 people who graduated at Regroup who said, I have no game, Jesus, please help me, and they took steps that way. If only we would celebrate that in our own life when we take steps toward Jesus and freely admit that we need him. That's the first thing. Jesus reverses shame and gives us honor, and it should transform our hearts as we live in a world, as we live in this world among others. Here's the second thing. Jesus reverses the order of love and forgiveness. He reverses the order of love and forgiveness. Um, so Simon thinks he's trapped Jesus, right? Uh, I, this man was a prophet. He would know who this woman is. And maybe even Simon invited Jesus over just to like watch him, like see if he would mess up, see if he could find some reason to accuse him for all the problems that he's causing and all of the popularity he's getting. Maybe he could, he could knock him off with this thing. And um, it's funny because Simon thinks like Jesus should know this woman's heart. And he doesn't. But he does. But he's also about to show Simon that he's read his heart. Because he tells him this story about this money lender. And the story goes this way, right? That there's this money lender who has two people who owe him money. One owes 50 denarii, which would be like um, uh, 50 days wages, so like a month and a half of your salary. And then another one owes 500 days wages, so like a year and a half of your salary. Like, that's a huge difference. But neither of them can pay this money lender back. And so the money lender cancels both debts, forgives them both. And then Jesus turns towards Simon and says, which one do you think would love the money lender more? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And then Jesus says, you're looking at her. You're looking at her. This woman has had the bigger debt forgiven. He says in verse 47, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown David Lloyd-Jones shares this helpful illustration that I think makes sense of this. He says, um, you know, suppose a friend comes to you one day and um, says, I was at your house the other day, and a bill came, and so I paid it for you. The question is, how do I respond to my friend? And the answer is, I have no idea how to respond unless I know how much he paid. Like, like, did like some postage come and you had to pay the postage for something? Was it like 20 cents? Or did the IRS come knocking and I have like 20 years of back taxes that I just forgot about and uh, you paid that, right? So Lloyd Jones says, I have no idea how to respond to my friend. I don't know if I should just thank him and shake his hand or fall down at his feet and kiss him. This is the point that Jesus is making here that the one who is forgiven more loves more. And here's the point I'm making, that forgiveness by God has to come before love for God. Forgiveness by God has to come before love for God. And, and to be clear here, right, it would be a mistake. We would be missing the point if we look at this and we think, 
You know, this woman is being forgiven because she's so, like, remorseful and she's crying so much and she's pouring on, you know, this uh, oil and kissing his feet and all those sorts of things. We would be missing the point of the story, Jesus tells, because both of these uh, people who owe money to the moneylender, they don't do anything. Like, the, the debt is just canceled. And at the end of the passage, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Forgiveness by God comes before Love for God. And I need you to hear this if you, are, if you are still investigating the Christian faith, if you're still asking what, what, is, what is the point of all of this, or even if you're not and you're, still, you're trying to figure out like what does, uh, what does it mean to really follow Jesus in my life, the point here is that this narrative is completely different than the philosophies or religious worldviews of the world. It's a completely different narrative. One of my privileges um, working on university campuses is uh, we do this at UCF, but now it happens all over the country. We, we host these interfaith forums where we invite students from different religious backgrounds to come, and it's sort of a roundtable setting to have like sort of civil and respectful dialogue about, about God. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Um, and uh, when I go to these things, you know, I, I, it's really awesome to hear people share um, what they believe, why they believe it, how it influences their life, and a chance for us to sort of interact with them and share this is what uh, Christianity is and um, to kind of engage on that. Um, and I was at one of these events a couple years ago, and um, I was sitting down at this table, and people from, students from all different religious backgrounds are there. And um, one of the students, at one point, you know, he says, I, I always hear Christians talk about um, that Jesus is the only way or that Christianity is the only way. And I've never understood why they say that. Why do they say that? And I was the only Christian at the table, so every head is like, yeah, what, can you please you know, take care of that? We're just wondering about what, what do you have to say about that. And I said, um, you know, what I notice about the other religious worldviews, even as we've been talking at this table, is that it seems that you need to do something. You need to struggle in some way. You need to work in some way before God receives you, before God accepts you. But actually, the way the Christian message or the main message Jesus had was to say, come to him and admit that you failed, that you'll never live right in the future. You'll never live right. You've never lived right in the past. You're not living right now to confess freely that you've failed. And then he gives you his acceptance as a free gift. And then you respond in love out of gratitude, not because he's going to continue loving if you do that, but simply because, like a father loves his child, the child responds because he can trust that the dad will always love him, the parents will always love him. And I, I shared that at this uh, table. And there was a student sitting next to me from a Muslim background. And she left that. And she called, you know, the, the university student that had invited her to the event. And she said, you know, she had never heard this about Christianity before. And she um, calls her friend and says, you know, I, I, I want to read the Bible with you. I want to know more about Christianity. And so they start doing that. They start reading through the Bible. And this, this student starts taking these steps towards Jesus. And she was sitting down with me. And we were kind of talking about, you know, what she was learning about Christianity. And she said to me, you know, um, I always believed in Islam that when I die, the only thing I take with me to the afterlife is my deeds. But I know my deeds are nothing. And I'm actually cleaning it up for you. She said, I know my deeds are expletive. <laughs> but 
Jesus, what I'm learning about Jesus is he erases my bad deeds. And because I know he knows them and he loves me, I can now love myself. It's a completely different narrative that forgiveness by God comes first and it comes free and it leads us to respond in love for God. I was at a, an event at the uh, Florida Institute of Technology where um, we had a, a Muslim speaker and I was speaking for the Christian group and we were talking about Jesus and there was a Q&A time at the end and this question came from the Muslim gentleman and asking him, you know, uh, how do you attain salvation in Islam? And he said, he said very clearly, we must struggle. We must work. It's the opposite. It's the reverse. You need to love God and then forgiveness and acceptance comes. Or you look at the karmic way of life where I, I need to do something to make up for the bad I've done. But the problem with that is that even at least a bank tells you how much you owe and how long you have to pay it back. But with karma, you don't know either. You don't know how much you owe, how much bad have I really done, and how long before I'll be called to pay account for it. The narrative of Jesus is completely different. Forgiveness by God comes before love for God, and it changes us. In every other system, it's the reverse. E. Stanley Jones was this um, missionary uh, to India, and he talked about once where he was talking with this uh, Hindu government officer. And this government officer was struggling with the idea of Jesus dying. And that being like celebrated in Christianity. Like, why, why did Jesus have to die, this moral, kind, like exemplary man? Why did he have to die? And why do you celebrate that? And he rejected it. He rejected the idea of Jesus dying and the significance it had until he realized he had lived a life betraying his wife. And the guilt of what he had done tormented him so much, he said to himself, I need to go and tell my wife what I've done. And so he, he went to her, he sat her down on the bed, and he told her of this illicit affair that he had been engaged in. And as you can imagine, his wife just broke down. And she cries, and she cries, and she cries. And after hours of sobbing, she comes to her husband, and she takes his hand, and she says to him, I love you. And I will not allow what you have done to take away from me the opportunity to forgive you and to love you. And suddenly it dawned on this man what the cross and the death of Jesus was all about. It was love being crucified by sin. Love being crucified by sin. It is out of love that God forgives us and pays for the cosmic consequences held accountable in our place for what we have done. Forgiveness by God must come before love for God. Because here's the thing, here's what happens if it's the reversed. We're bound to a life of anxiety, of instability, of uncertainty. Am I enough? Will I ever do enough? Have I done enough? We're bound to a life of shame continuing to haunt us if Jesus doesn't reverse those two, the order of those two. The question for us becomes, why did Simon not get it? Why did he miss Jesus? He's right there in front of him. Why does he miss Jesus? And Jesus tells us in verse 47, he says, but whoever, he tells Simon, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. 
you know, I hear this from most students. Uh, I think this pretty much still happens on college campuses. When, they're, when you get tested you know, and you get graded, you get your grades back, and they, they go back into the class, um, and they're all nervous, the one question on everybody's mind is, what was the highest grade on the test? All right, because there's this thing called the bell curve. And they're graded on this curve, right? And so if, if the, the teacher's like, the professor's like, highest grade was a 70. Everyone's like, we all failed. OK, great. I think I got a 60 at least on that test. So that's probably all right. So that's great. Um, many of us, I think, think that we're graded on this sort of morality curve, that there's this like morality distribution in life. And as long as I'm not. As long as I'm a little better than Hitler, I think it's, it's OK. Or maybe, maybe, you know, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm getting there. You know, I'm better than that guy over there. You know, we, we all think we're sort of graded on this morality distribution. But the thing is, when you look at the scriptures, when you look at what Jesus says, the problem that we have is not that we are bad people and we need to become good people or better people. It's that we're dead people, spiritually flatlined, and we need to be brought back to life. That's the problem that we have. We're not good and we need to become, we're not bad and we need to become good. We're dead and we need to be brought back to life. Simon thought he was definitely better than this woman. Like, maybe to be forgiven little is to think you need little forgiveness, which borders on thinking you don't need any forgiveness at all. None of us need little forgiveness. None of us are forgiven little. It's our own perception of it. We're all dead. Like, there's no, like, that guy's more dead than that guy. You know, we all need like a Lazarus type of intervention. You're dead in the grave for three days, and we need Jesus to call us out. That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus actually makes possible for us. The problem is that we're dead, and we need to be brought back to life. Here's the application. Are you playing some sort of comparing game? Whether you've been a follower of Jesus a long time, you just became a follower of Jesus, or you're still figuring this out, and you're still wondering... Are you playing some sort of comparing game? Am I better than most people? Do you think you need, you're forgiven little? You will miss the goodness and the grace of God if you compare yourselves to others. Listen, the greater our ownership of our failure before God, the greater our response of love to God. The greater our ownership of our failure, the greater our experience of God's grace. Shame and honor are reversed. The order of love and forgiveness are reversed. And I'll very quickly, the last point, Jesus's identity is reversed in the passage. If you notice, at the very beginning of the passage, Simon's like, who is this guy? He's not even a prophet. At the end of the passage, Jesus has just declared, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in there is like, what the junk? Like, who is this guy? Like, who can forgive sins? but God alone. And Jesus is making a very clear claim that he is God in human skin. That the reason he can do these first two things I mentioned is because he has the authority to do it. He has the authority to reverse shame and honor. He has the authority to reverse the narrative that would ruin us of love coming before forgiveness. He has the authority to do that. He holds everything together. The reason the atoms in your body hold together is because of God, because of Jesus. He is the one to whom and for whom and 
by whom everything exists. He is the infinite and intimate God, the unique one. He has the authority. His identity is reversed. Let me close, try to tie this all together. I was talking with a student who was a very honest, skeptical student, and he was saying to me, you know, I would, I would like to believe in Christianity, but I can't believe in a loving God who sends people to hell. I can't believe in a loving God who would send people to hell. You know, maybe if you took hell out of the equation, I could believe in the God you're talking about. And um, I appreciated his honesty, you know? We appreciate that honesty here at Summit. And I said to him, you know, I totally get where you're coming from. I totally understand what you're feeling. But I actually think that when you really consider it, God becomes less loving without hell than with hell. He's actually more loving with hell. And he's like, how is that even possible? And And I said to him, well, if the Christian message is that God takes the cosmic consequences of our failures against him and receives us. If, it's, if the story, like one poet says, is that the hero dies for the villain, if that's the story of the Christian message, then at the center of the Christian message is a God who takes hell for you, is a God who takes hell for you. So if you eject hell from the equation, then you have no idea the, like, how much does God love you, right? It's a theoretical concept. He, he says he loves me, so he loves me. Or things are going good in my life, so he loves me. But if things start going bad, it's like, well, does he love me? But because there's a cross, his love is tangible. His love is real. It's a historical reality for you and for me. There's something I can point to and look at that he took upon, he absorbed the accountability that each and I deserve. I deserve to be shamed, but he took that shame instead and gives me honor. I have something tangible to tell me how much God actually loves me. What is the extent of God's love is that. Until we acknowledge and accept and own that we all deserve we will miss the great experience of knowing how much God loves you. We will miss the great reversal that God wants to bring in your life. I don't know how many years ago it was now, but when the movie Slumdog Millionaire came out, it won Best Picture. And one of the cool things about that movie, if you remember it, there's these two like slum children growing up, and one's name is Jamal, and one name, one's name is Latika, and they're, they're trying to get back together. Like the whole movie is about the, how they get back together and all the crazy things that they go through. And at one point in the movie, they're about to be reunited, but um, Latika gets like uh, uh, um, kidnapped by all these uh, gangsters, and in the process, she gets cut across her face, and Jamal loses her. But at the end of the movie, through a series of circumstances, they get back together, and they're in the train station, and, and now Jamal is about to like, be reunited with his love, Latika, and he comes to her, and he, he, there's, a, there's a shawl covering her face, and he moves her face, and he sees the scar across her face, and Latika looks down. She feels like her beauty has been marred. She feels shame, and what does Jamal do? He takes his lips, and he kisses her scar, and do you remember what happened in the movie? The whole movie went in rewind. 
It went backwards, where all of the things that had led up to Latika getting that scar went backwards. And that kiss was the way in which it went backwards. Listen, friends, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is like the kiss of God upon our broken lives and our damaged world. It reverses everything. It takes it backwards, where no longer do we have to experience shame. We can experience honor. No longer do we have to experience anxiety and uncertainty because the order is reversed because of the authority Jesus has and the love he has to kiss us. Let me pray. Jesus, would you come? Come right now, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, Lord. Would you put your finger in the places where we, we need to assimilate this word into our lives, God? Would you reveal to us, are we playing the comparing game and help us repent of that? Would you reveal to us if we tend to dehumanize people in the world, God? Would you remind us of the mercy we've received through you? Lord, do we question your ability and your authority, God? Remind us of who you actually are. Jesus, we want to experience your great forgiveness. Help us own up to our great sin so that we might experience that. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.